From time to time, I get asked to address groups in communities around the country and in Israel as well. And I have a general practice of giving the inviter a number of choices, a list of possible topics. And I always put this one at the end of the list, and they always pick it anyhow. <laughs> so um, what I wanted to begin by telling you is, other than this topic, I also know a few other things. So um, just because uh, this topic gets chosen, it's not necessarily the only thing that I've ever studied or worked on. The other thing, of course, I have to tell you is that this is a topic that cannot be covered in 45 minutes or in 45 hours or in 45 years or in a lifetime of 120 years. It's a topic that I've been struggling with since I began my studies more than 30 years ago. I think that I'll continue to struggle with it for as many more years as God gives me on this earth. And um, the most that I can say to you this afternoon is that I would like to invite you to struggle along with me a little bit. Uh, struggle with me, struggle against me, struggle with your own souls and your own selves and your own friends and family members, and uh, especially struggle with ideas. How can you say that? People ask me all the time. How can you say that and wear a kippah? Um, if I were a female instructor, I wouldn't have this problem, right? How can you say that and wear a kippah? But they'd figure out some way to put the same question the same way. Um, how can you be a biblical scholar and engage in such questions as when the books were written, whether what's written in them is historically factual or not, how they were transmitted to us, whether the practice of the Jewish religion as we engage in it today is or is not a true reflection of what these books say? How can you be an Orthodox Jew and engage in topics like this? So, it's a pretty good question. Um, I don't think that there is a one-line answer, although probably if I were pressed to say something in a 20-second soundbite to give the one answer to the question, I would say something like, what are you talking about? What does one thing have to do with the other? That would probably leave the questioner fairly flustered and fairly unsatisfied. So luckily we have more than 20 seconds this afternoon. We can spend a couple of minutes, three quarters of an hour or so, working on some of the sources, some of the ancient and medieval sources that enable us to look at this question a little bit more analytically and to see what's been said about these issues in the Jewish tradition before us. And this is one of the most uh, satisfying aspects of teaching anything that has to do with Jewish sources, Jewish questions, Jewish issues. You never have to make it up. You can always find someone that wrote about it in the 12th century, someone that responded to him in the 13th, someone that questioned him in the 16th, and someone that's still quoting words that were said in the second century here in the 20th and in the 21st. And almost never do you have to figure out anything on your own. You just have to read the words of these worthy ancestors of ours and see what you can get from them for the present. So without, more, without any more introduction, let's take up the handout, see how far we get, and see what we can possibly, see what we can possibly learn from some of the sources. The first question that people are always asking is, doesn't the whole commitment to the Jewish religion depend on the truth of the Bible? And when they say truth, they're asking me the historical factual truth. When I hear that question, I think sometimes that many Jews have become Protestants, because I know that Within Protestant denominations in the Christian faith, the historical truth of the Bible is very, very essential. And although there are some liberal Protestant denominations in which good efforts have been made to overcome this, still, to a large extent, Protestantism does rise or fall on the truth of what's told in the Gospels. However, a great Protestant Bible scholar sat down with me one Shabbat afternoon and said, 
You guys have it easy. For you, it doesn't matter at all whether this stuff happened or not. It's just a matter of how you tell it. And sometimes when someone is trying to be a little bit flip or silly with you, you learn a lot. Look at number one on the handout. Here's a passage from the Talmud. A passage from the Babylonian Talmud, Baba Batra, 14a. Has nothing to do with the Torah, just has to do with the book of Job. But we can extrapolate, we can apply what is said here to the Torah as well. One of the disciples, that is one of the people in the Beit Midrash, sat before Rabbi Shmuel, the son of Nachmani, and he said, Job never really existed. It's merely a story. He, that is Rabbi Shmuel ben Nachmani, replied, it's just for people like you that the Bible says there was a man in the land of Uts. Job was his name. All right, so he gave him a little bit of funny response. He said, how can you say he never existed? The book begins with the words, once there was a man in. But of course, every one of us knows that lots of books begin with once upon a times there was, there were, once upon a times there lived. And when none of us would use that as a proof that what we're reading is historically factual, we would require other evidence. However, Rabbi Shmuel Nachmani was trying to say, Scripture is very clear on topics like this, and you should know better than to raise such a possibility. That has to do with Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani and his disciple. But as far as the Babylonian Talmud is concerned, as far as the passage in the Talmud is concerned, the disciples' view was a worthy opinion, a legitimate one, one that deserved to be heard, deserved to be preserved for generations, and one that, many hundreds of years later, Rashi himself saw fit to explain so that we would understand the basis, the logic, and the legitimacy behind the opinion. Look what's at the end of the paragraph in number one. Rashi's explanation of what the disciple meant when he said, it's not really history, it's just a story. Rashi explained the word story, the Hebrew word there is mashal, and Rashi explained it to mean a parable from which one may learn how to respond to those who challenge divine justice, and one may learn not to find fault with a person in the midst of suffering. Now what was Rashi saying? The story is important, the story is in the Bible, the book of Job is preserved, canonized, consecrated, sacred, it's a holy book, not because it happened or didn't happen, but because of what it says, because of the message that it teaches. What does the book of Job teach? Well, here we could discuss that all day long, and then we would have, I would have a chance to give another lecture rather than the one that you asked me to give. Um, but instead of that, let's just listen to what Rashi said. Rashi said the book of Job teaches how to respond to those who challenge divine justice, and that it's not so nice, it's not ethical, it's not good form to find fault with a person in the midst of his or her suffering. Are these things true as far as Rashi was concerned? They certainly are. I think these are two things that most of the people in the room would agree are true. How to respond to those who challenge divine justice along the lines of the responses given in the book of Job, and that when a person in the midst, is in the midst of terrible suffering, it's not a good idea to find fault with him to criticize him exactly at that moment. The truth of the moral of the story is good enough as far as this disciple of Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani was concerned, and that's why the book was preserved. Truth is not necessarily historical truth, he was saying. Truth can be in what the book was written in order to express. Now, look at number two. Here we have a lesser-known commentator who lived in 12th century France, He's only a little bit lesser known than people like Rashi and his descendants because his books somehow got lost and haven't been preserved as well as those that you've heard of. But Yosef Bechor Shor was an important commentator and one from whom we have a lot to learn. He arrived at the story of the striking of the rock for water in the middle of the book of Numbers and he wrote the following. Wait a second, he said. This reminds me of what happened when Moses struck the rock way back in the book of Exodus and water came out. That time he wasn't punished because he was told to strike it. This time he struck it and he wasn't told to, so he got in trouble. 
he said, the two stories are fairly similar. To me, it seems that this account relates the same event as that reported back there in the book of Exodus. There, the purpose was to inform us in general that God provided for the Israelites in the wilderness by giving them manna and water. After which, that is when we got to this story in Numbers, Scripture recorded each event in its own place. So Joseph Bechoshor has a very literally sophisticated idea here. He says, the one back there in Exodus is not to relate any particular event. It's just to give us the general idea that when the Israelites were in the wilderness, God gave them water and sustenance of other sorts. And then he tells the story in which he recounts each detail. And this is one of the details that he was told to speak to the rock. He hid it. He got in trouble. He got punished. This is one of the stories. Now, why did I bring this example here? What does this have to do with what we're talking about? Rabbi Yosef Bechoshor is telling us that not only the book of Job, not only legends in the Talmud, but even in the Torah itself, it is more than likely that there are things that are written as narrative accounts. They look like stories of things that are said to have taken place, but they didn't really take place. They're written for literary purposes, to express something either thematically or structurally or theologically, ideologically. Some things can be written in a book in the form of stories without the author even intending you to take them as though they actually took place in real fact. We could go on with this all day. I want to move on to some of the other topics. Before I do, I want to tell you about a colleague of mine who teaches at a university in, in Montreal, Canada, which is where my wife comes from and who occasionally gets a chance to teach in, um, in Yeshiva University in New York City as well. He says he tries to get his first-year undergraduates used to the idea of looking a little bit critically at the Bible, a little bit more sophisticatedly at the Bible, by asking them questions and cornering them. Cornering them is not really such a nice thing to do, um, especially when they're graduate students. But sometimes undergrads can use a little bit of cornering. And um, after all, I say to them, this is what you're paying me for, to corner you. So here's the, here's, here's the method that he uses. They come to him and they say, how can you say that you're teaching us a text that presents itself as though something were related in it that is supposed to have taken place, and you say that you know for sure that it didn't take place, and it's just a literary text, and it's just there. For, it's not historical at all. It's just there for the, How can you do such a thing and wear this on your head? Right? And he says, this is what I do. I ask them, if God were interested in making his will known to human beings, could he do so by revealing it to them in the form of words? And they say, well, of course, that's what we're here for. That's what we, of course, we all believe that. Sure. If God wanted to do so, could he do it in the form of laws? And they say, well, of course he could. That's the best way of making your will known to human beings. If you're God, you give them commandments. Could he do it, they ask, he asks, in the form of prophecy? Well, of course. After the laws were given, then the prophets were there to admonish people about keeping them and to threaten them what happened, for what, what happened to them if they don't keep them. So prophecy is one of the best ways that God can make his will known to people. They go on, how about in wisdom texts, such as Job and, and, and Proverbs? Yeah, that's a good way for God to make his will known to people. Could he do so in the form of history? The student's already getting impatient by this point, and he says, in the form of history, of course, much of the Bible is history, and this is one of the ways that God lets his will be known to people, by telling history. And anyhow, if he's God, he can do whatever he wants, right? So could we get on with the lesson? And the professor doesn't go on with the lesson. He asks, could he do it in the form of poetry? They think a little bit more, and they say, well, if he's God, he can do it however he wants, so if he wants to do it in the form of poetry, that's also okay. And then, of course, once he's got them way in the corner, he says, and if he wanted to let his, no, his will be known to human beings in the form of fiction. Could he tell fiction? And of course, the student has no choice but to throw up his hands and say, well, I guess he could if he wanted to. I never heard that before, but now that you make me think about it, I suppose, I suppose he could. Can human beings write fiction? Of course. Can they also write historical fact? Of course. Can God write historical fact? Of course. Can he also write fiction? Of course. The origin, divine or human, and the historicity, false or true, creative or historical, really have nothing to do with each other. 
That's what I meant before when I said, well, really, one thing has nothing to do with the other. And that is, I think, what this Talmudic passage is trying to convey to us by preserving the opinion of the disciple who was shot down by Shmuel Bar Nachmani, but whose words were pre preserved in the Talmud for all time. By preserving this story, the Talmud is letting us know that it is perfectly legitimate to say that the creation account, according to which the world was created in six 24-hour days, is a parable, a symbol, a metaphor, a statement of truths that are not in the historical, geological, natural history department, but in another department altogether. Just like you could say about the book of Esther, which if you've had Professor Paul here, you must know, is uh, based very little on what can be confirmed by historical, historical research. And still, the truth of the book, the message that the book is trying to convey, is in a category that has nothing whatsoever to do with those events and has a lot more to do with God and his care for the Israelite people. Okay, now we'll move on to something a little bit um, in, a in a different area. Number three. Three and four are passages from the book of Deuteronomy that everyone's familiar with. They come up every year at the end of the summer, just around the time of the holidays. According to Deuteronomy 31, when Moses finished speaking, he wrote this Torah and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. And he said, read this aloud every seven years. And number four, number four relates about Moses' death. Moses went up from the steps of Moab to Mount Nebo to the summit of Pisgah, opposite Jericho. The Lord showed him the whole land, and then he died at the command of the Lord. He buried him, which apparently means the Lord himself buried him right there in the land of Moab, and no one knows where he was buried, and never again did there arise in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Those are the last words of the Torah, and we're all familiar with them. The account of Moses committing to writing the words that he had just spoken in Deuteronomy 31, and the account of Moses' death in Deuteronomy 34. In the Talmud, on the very same page we were reading above for another re reason, the question is asked, could Moses have died and written the words, so Moses died? Right? How do you write that after you're already dead? And the answer given there is, well, it makes sense to say that up to this point he wrote, that is up until but not including those words, he wrote, and from this point on, Joshua wrote. Joshua, Moses' successor, also a prophetic figure. He wrote the rest. So according to this, those last eight lines, last eight verses of the Torah, would have been written by Joshua because Moses couldn't have written about his own death after he was already dead. That was the first opinion. Rabbi Shimon says, no. Up to this point he wrote, and also beyond this point he wrote. The only difference is he wrote in tears. That is, he wrote the account of his own death in tears. Most people think that that just means he was crying as he wrote it. Wrote in tears means instead of ink. That is, instead of taking ink and applying it to the scroll, he took tears and applied them to the scroll, and that's what he wrote it with. Um, but the same idea, right? That he had the account of his own death dictated to him before it took place. Hearing this moved him to tears. He committed it to writing, and then he died. So you have in the Talmud two views. One view says it's impossible for a person to write in past tense about his own death. Therefore, if it's written in past tense about his death, it must have been written by someone else. And the other view says, no, if it was dictated by God, it can be dictated before it happens, and it was written in tears. The Talmud leaves you a choice. Ibn Ezra, number six on your handout, does not leave you a choice. Ibn Ezra, from Spain in the 12th century, that is, he was born in Spain, but he left Spain and traveled around Central Western Europe, arriving even in England and eventually um, settling or wandering around France, wrote the following. First, in his introduction to the Torah, he said, if the mind, that's by which we mean one's rational faculties, one's common sense, if the mind cannot bear an interpretation, or if it is incompatible what is experienced by the senses, right, the mind or one of the five senses, then an alternative non-literal explanation must be sought since the foundation of truth is reason. Here's a statement that you think sounds like the opposite of religion, and yet Ibn Ezra is one of the most important theological thinkers in the whole history of the Jewish people, and he says the foundation of truth is reason. 
Ask him to substantiate that claim. He goes on to do it in the following way. The Torah was not given to a creature incapable of thought. Right? The Torah wasn't given to monkeys or, or, or centipedes. Right? It was given to human beings who think. And it wasn't given to them and, along with a warning. Here's the Torah. Use this instead of your minds. Right? Use this and hang your brains at the door. Right? The Torah wasn't given that way. The Torah was not given to a creature incapable of thought. And the intermediary between God and man is his mind, the human mind. That is, we might say it in a slightly different way. The only way that humans, in a, land, in a world after prophecy, right, in a, in a world where there are no more prophets, the only w way that humans have any way of intuiting, understanding, intelligent, anything of the divine is through the mind, which makes sense because the mind also got there from God, right? It didn't, like the arms and the toes also got there. The mind got there the same way. So if the source of the human mind is God, and the source of the Torah is God, then one cannot be given priority over the other, and one cannot be given absolute authority over the other. And so Ibn Ezra says, the interpretation method that I am going to use is the one that seems correct in my own eyes and in the sight of God, whom alone I fear. This is his way of saying, and no one's going to talk me out of this just because they think I'm saying things that are a little bit controversial. I don't fear human beings. I don't fear public criticism. And I certainly don't fear ignorant people's comments on what I have to say. I only fear God. He goes on, and then he goes on to say, I refuse to commit any falsehood regarding the Torah. No one's going to convince me to say, write, and publish things that I don't believe in just because they are unpopular. After all, we are dealing with things of the utmost importance. This he says in his introduction to the Torah. And so you can imagine when he gets to a passage such as this, which relates in past tense the death of Moses, the only thing he can do is use his mind and his integrity and not compromise what his rational faculties dictate to him, and write the following. So he arrives at the end of the Torah, and he says, in my opinion, the section that Joshua wrote commenced, Joshua wrote? In the Talmud, we had a choice. Maybe Joshua wrote eight verses. Maybe Moses wrote them in tears. You already take it for granted that Joshua wrote the end of the Torah, and look what he says here. He wants to begin the section written by Joshua a little bit earlier. Rather than saying the section that begins with the words, Moses died, was written by Joshua, he wants to start the section that was written by Joshua four lines up with the words, Moses went up to Mount Nebo. Think about it. Don't read ahead. and see if you can figure out why. Why? Because he had to write it before he went up. Because after he went up to Mount Nebo, he died. He didn't come down, right? He wasn't going to send it by fax, by email, right? The, the computer, the laptop was left down, right? So he didn't take the laptop up with him. So he couldn't send the message down. He didn't write any more after he went up the mountain. Or if he did, we don't have it. Now, what's Ibn Ezra doing here? He's saying it's not a matter of... 99.2% of the Torah was written by Moses, and 0.8% wasn't. It's not a matter of percentiles. It's not a matter of a certain number of verses. It's a matter of using your head. He couldn't have written these verses, and therefore he didn't. It's not possible even for a prophet to write in advance things that are going to happen and write them in past tense. If he wrote, wrote it in future tense, Right? I, Moses, now am going to die, that would be fine. But writing it in the past tense, no one does that until it has already happened. And he says, understand the precise nature of these verses, as well as, and he gives a whole list of other examples, and you'll recognize the truth. He gives a list of examples of passages in the Torah that could not have been written by Moses because they don't make sense in his time. They can only have been written much later. And he says, recognize this and you'll recognize the truth, period. And he shuts up and goes home and publishes his book. And luckily, 
because if he had written the truth rather than said, think about this and you'll know the truth, probably his commentaries would have been, I won't say burned, but they might not have arrived intact uh, seven, eight hundred years later to the point that they have arrived. However, one of his successors, number seven on your handout, an Italian scholar by the name of Bonfils, he has a French name, but he was Italian. Two centuries later, or almost two centuries later, in his commentary on Ibn Ezra, said, okay, he wrote, recognize this and you'll know the truth, but keep it to yourself. I'm going to explain it all because it doesn't matter. And he said the following, what does it matter if Moses or some other prophet wrote it, if in any case, the words of all of them, he means all of the prophets, are prophetically inspired? These two lines are almost the 22nd soundbite that answers the whole question. What does it matter if a particular human being was involved in the transmission of the divine will to other humans? If we're talking about something that originates in divine, prophetic, revealed, somehow communicated knowledge or truth, then isn't the vehicle sort of irrelevant? If the vehicle is Moses or Moses' mother-in-law, does it matter? If it's Moses or Moses' successor or some later successor, does it matter? If it's Moses' successor or a group of successors, does it matter? Anyhow, says Joseph Bonfils, if we are commanded, if we are required to believe in the prophetic inspiration per se, then the prophets, it really doesn't matter how many of them there were, if the book itself is prophetically inspired, then why not use our minds to figure out when it was written and how it was written? So I'll, 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 so I'll, I'll, I'll respond with something that he probably had in the back of his mind, and I have in the front of my mind whenever I hear this. What we mean when we use that description that you quote from the beginning of the Mishnah in Avot, that Moses received the Torah and passed it on and they passed on, all authorities agree that that Mishnah is talking about the oral Torah and not the written Torah. As for the literary form of the written Torah, I only give you four or five examples in a 45-minute lecture. But from the beginning of the Middle Ages down to the end of the Middle Ages, down to the Rambam, there is a very strong strain of tradition that agrees that the authorship of that took place over a long period of time. However, you do put your figure on the exactly right point. We'll come to it, if we have time, in a few more minutes. Okay. Um, I think that for the sake of time, I'm going to skip number eight. Number eight, I'll just tell you in the margin what the importance was. Another example of the same thing, but I wanted to show you that not only enlightened, rational, scientific-speaking Sephardi, Spanish Jews um, from the 12th century said things like this, but even Nebuch Ashkenazim from France and Germany who uh, have no, or under no suspicion of being heretical, in, influenced by uh, Neoplatonic Islamic thought, came up with the same things and used them even more creatively. Yehudah Hasid certainly is under no suspicion of being anything less than the pious uh, committed Jew that he was. And still, he found examples that Ibn Ezra would never have dreamed of, of uh, places in the Torah that had to have been written at later stages. For he was not concerned with this issue of the written form of the Torah in its final form at all. Okay. So what do we mean then when we say that the Torah is divine? What can be meant by divinely inspired if the direct connection between a single God and a single human author is broken by scholarly inquiry? Look at number nine at the bottom of page one, and we'll turn to page two as we read a little bit more. Prophet Duran, whom I'm sure no one here has heard of, some of you may have heard of him in his other name, his nickname. He's called the Ephodi. He got that from the initials of one of his works and his name. Wrote in the following passage about Genesis 32. Jacob sends a message to Esau. He says, I'm coming back to meet you. And um, he sends his messengers to tell Esau the following. I'm looking forward to getting together. I hope that you're not still angry with me. And he says to them, go tell Esau this. And the words that he uses in Hebrew are, 
Kol Tomrun, thus shall you say to my Lord Esau. Thus shall you say. He used the word ko, which means thus. Duran explains at this point something that has nothing to do with Jacob and Esau at all. The word thus means the likes of these words. Thus doesn't mean exactly these words. It means the likes of. And then he goes on on a tangent. I take similarly every thus said the Lord found in the sayings of the prophets. They mean by it, whenever the prophets say, thus said God, they say, ko amar Adonai. Whenever they say that, they mean the intent of God's speech to them, what's to be understood by his words. They don't mean the exact words. They don't scruple to make some verbal changes in it as long as the basic idea, the purport, is kept unchanged. When the sages, now he talks about the Talmud, when the sages said, all the prophets prophesied with thus said, but Moses exceeded them in that he prophesied with this is the word. So now you get the idea. There's two sets of prophets here, right? Moses and everybody else. Moses on the one side says, this is what God said. And the other prophet said, thus said the Lord. Duran says there's two different things. When you say this, you mean the very speech without any verbal change. They retain the intent, the general idea, but with Moses, that wasn't sufficient. With Moses, he had the, the exact words. And he goes on to explain there's a reason for this. The other prophets gave admonitions and warnings and told of the future. But Moses gave the mitzvot. He gave the laws, and so he had to do them word for word. Now, you might say, well, why would you bring a passage like this? Doesn't this disprove what you're saying? Doesn't this tell you that the tradition insisted that when Moses said, when the Torah says this, he means exactly so, you're right, I could have left this out, but I'm trying to develop something here by progression. And what I'm trying to develop here is that throughout the development of Jewish thought, we can see a gradual acceptance of the idea that divine speech is not necessarily speech. Prophets intuit an idea, a thought, a message, but they are the ones who give it its verbal form. They decide how to say it, when to say it, how long to make the speech, unless they have somebody like Ari telling them it has to be 45 minutes, but otherwise right, they could talk as long as they want. Right? It's the prophet himself who's responsible for giving the message its form. And yet, that's called speaking in the name of God. I established this so that when you read number 10 on the handout, you won't be quite as, um, shall we say, uh, uh, puzzled and shocked as you might be otherwise. Abrabanel, who is already a great rationalist, has no trouble saying that the entire book of Deuteronomy, the entire book of Devarim, that means one-fifth of the Torah, wasn't written really by God at all. It wasn't written by God at all. Look how he gets away with this. You'll say, ah, you think Schwartz is clever? Abravanel is really clever. Abravanel wrote as following. At the beginning of his commentary on Deuteronomy, he says, Moses said these things, namely the whole book of Deuteronomy, and expounded the commandments mentioned here to Israel for the purpose of taking leave of them. He was about to die, so he gave this long speech. And then what happened? The Holy One, blessed be he, desired that after Moses finished saying them to Israel, he might write down all of it in the Torah scroll just as he had said it. So you get the idea here? Moses invented every word in the book of Deuteronomy. God listened and he said, that's a good book. That's a good, very good speech. You know what? Write that down in my Torah. Write that down in my Torah. Hence, he goes on to say, while the saying of these words was of Moses, the writing in the Torah scroll was not. Because how could he write down anything of his own in God's Torah? How do you like this for having your cake and eating it too? Abravanel has figured out a way to give the human side in the creation and authorship of the book of Deuteronomy in its entirety, including the contents, including the contents, not just the words, to give the human side of this authorship its full weight and still detract nothing from the divine side. How? He says, Moses made it up and retroactively, ex post facto, God sanctioned it. Well, if you wanted a 20-second soundbite that would summarize the whole lecture, that would be it, right? Humans do the work, and retroactively God sanctions it. 
You don't have to wait until 2007 to hear that. You could hear that in the 15th century in Portugal if you were just reading, if you were just there at the time. The Holy One gave his approval, and the words of his faithful spokesman were acceptable, whereupon, now Abravana has to solve another problem now. How are we going to get away with saying that Moses spoke it and also wrote it even with divine sanction? Wasn't the Torah supposed to be dictated by God? So Abravanel says, yeah, Moses said it, God heard it, God repeated it to him word for word and said, okay, write this down. So rather than God being the originator and the human being the imitator, the, the dictaphone, it's the other way around. The human side was the originator, according to Abravanel, and God accepted and repeated. And then Moses put it down in the Torah. Well, none of this should be too surprising once we have read what will probably be the last couple of things that we'll look at here, number 11. People are always quoting Maimonides and saying, how can you possibly question the doctrine of the verbal revelation of the Torah word for word? Doesn't the Rambam say that the entire Jewish religion rests on this? Isn't this one of the 13 principles of Jewish faith? Principles of Jewish faith. Well, an awful lot has been written about those, especially in the last couple of years. But Maimonides is the one who is responsible for formulating them, those 13 principles. So let's see what he wrote. Instead of just spouting it off and saying, didn't the Rambam say? Let's see what he did say. So what he wrote about principle number eight, namely the revelation of the Torah, is as follows. He wrote, it's very difficult to have a true conception of the events at Sinai, because there's never been before, nor will there ever be again anything like it. And then he phrases the belief. We believe, right? People say this every morning. What do they say? We believe that the Torah has reached Moses from God in a manner which is described in, fig in Scripture figuratively by the word speech. Figuratively by the word speech. When the Torah says that God spoke, that's a metaphor. And when we repeat that and we say that God dictated words, that's a metaphor. No one has ever known how that communication took place, except for Moses himself and God, I suppose, because he was there too. Um, and therefore, we call it speech because we don't have a better word for it. So basically, what he's saying here is that the human mind, human intellect, and human creativity intuiting aspects of the divine and putting them down in writing is something that's so mysterious, so transcendent, so impossible to describe that we are no better off than the ancients. They called it speech. All we can do is repeat that word as long as we remember that when we say speech, we say words, we say wrote, we say spoke, as long as we remember not to take that literally. Let's conclude with the next paragraph paragraph in Maimonides, then you'll have some time if you'd like to make some comments or ask some questions. The last paragraph, which is number 11, but paragraph 2, right? Number 11, paragraph 2. This I found to be the, almost the most fascinating thing when it was first pointed out to me, and I hope that you'll share at least some of my fascination with it. In the Guide of the Perplexed, at the end of book 2, the Rambam writes the following. Every occurrence must have an immediate cause. And that cause must also have a cause. And so on and so on and so on until we arrive at the first cause, the first cause of all God and his will. Right? This is the Rambam's famous uh, doctrine of ultimate cause. For this reason, that is, because God is the first cause of everything, for this reason, the writers of the Bible often omit the intermediate stages and attribute actions carried out by human beings to the Creator, speaking of them as though they had been performed by God Himself. He goes on to give lots of examples. For example, he says, God fought a war. What he means is the army of Israel went to war and fought against it. But the way they say it is that God won this victory. We do the same thing, by the way, right? We're not the writers of the Bible. We talk exactly the same way. We may not even not always even notice it. The Rambam goes on to say, and this applies equally to things occurring in nature. That is, you might say, God brought a terrible typhoon 
by which we mean to say that the weather forces and the fronts and the uh, meteorological patterns lined up in a certain way that caused a typhoon. But who made all of the meteorological patterns and who created the laws of physics? That was God. And so we skipped the intermediate stage and said God caused the typhoon. Things occurring in nature. Things that result from human decision. That is, uh, he decided to go on Aliyah and go to graduate school in Israel. Instead of saying that, we say God sent him to Israel to graduate school. Well, because God was the one who created the parents who raised him and the teachers who taught him and the Zionist organizations that enticed him, and right, and so God is the first cause of it. So we just skip the intermediate stages. And things that occur by chance, right? Even things that occur just because they occurred. The Bible attributes all such occurrences to God's own action, command, or speech. He throws in the word command here so that you'll know exactly what he's talking about. Now, in the part that I did not reproduce for you here, I didn't print the continuation of the statement, he says, remember this because this is the most important thing I'm going to tell you in my whole book. Read this carefully, most important thing. This is the most important thing in the whole guide of the perplexed. Three volumes, this is the most important thing, he says. But of course, context is everything. He places this brief discussion of the ultimate cause of everything and the warning that you must read it carefully, 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 because it's the most important thing in my whole book, he places it right at the end of his discussion of prophecy, revelation, Moses, and the origin of the Torah. And then he says, ultimate cause of everything is God, and therefore we say that it came from God, even though we mean it happened in real history, it happened in nature, it happened in chance, it happened in the world. Remember that carefully, and then he shuts up and goes on to volume three. So what the Rambam is telling us is that the human agency in creating the Torah is exactly the same as the human agency in everything else in history, exactly the same as the agency of nature, including physics, in everything that happens in the cosmos, exactly the same as the agencies of chance and happenstance and history as a larger force in everything that happens in the world. Believing people, the writers of the Bible, right, pious, reverent, believing human beings attribute all of this to God, sometimes directly, as long as you remember that what we mean is that God is the first cause and the ultimate origin of everything. It doesn't really mean that in, the, in a literal sense, he picked up so-and-so and moved him to Israel. He brought a typhoon on that particular day. Or he created these five books um, without any human assistance. I think that almost everybody here, whether they've been exposed to these passages in the Rambam before or not, understands what's being said, right? What's being said here rings true, to me anyhow, rings true because it basically echoes our experience. Jewish people seem to have an intuitive knack for this. They uh, look back on events and they say, ah, that was bashert, right? It was, that was providentially guided. They look back on events and say, oh, now I understand why that happened. They look on something and they say, that's right. Or they look at something and they say, that's wrong. And they know right and wrong as being divine imperatives. Even though God didn't exactly appear to them in the middle of the night on their computer screens and say, that's right and that's wrong. Um, I think that's basically what the Rambam is talking about here, and uh, that's what some of these other passages are also alluding to, that is perfectly acceptable to recognize every aspect of the natural, historical, and human input into the course of history, including everything, and that is no way, in no way a contradiction to the statement that God is the one who originates, inspires, provides, causes, commands, in, quit, in quotes, speaks, and expects of us. I think that, uh, starting from the second question, the word today, the word today is starting to recede. That is, for most of my lifetime, I think that has really been the case, that um, modern orthodoxy has been based in Western countries and uh, to the extent that there really is such a thing in non-Western countries, has really been based on this um, 
we're going to use the tools of scholarship and thought and research for everything except Judaism, for everything except the Torah. There, as I said before, we're going to hang our brains outside the door and come inside, and that's, there's something very Prussian about that, something very, it goes back to Samson, Raphael, Hirsch, Orthodoxy, and there's something really, something very ennobling about it, right? We accept on the basis of faith and doctrine, and we're, we don't allow inquiry to enter here. And the effect that this has had on orthodox thought and practice in the modern world, as you say, is really immeasurable. But I think it's starting to change. I believe that it is starting to change. I think in the last 10, 15 years, we have witnessed it, and in the writings and uh, actions um, out there in the, in the self-proclaimed um, uh, true, pious, loyal, orthodox camp, it is starting to change. So be a little bit optimistic. On your, on your first question, you know very well, I'm sure, that uh, the uh, writings of the Rambam, the writings of Maimonides, were both vilified and burned on the one hand, and uh, ad adulated, adored, and almost deified on the other. It all depends on when you're looking and where you're looking. Um, it's not a matter of numbers, by the way, because if the greatest percentage of people that were exposed even to the writings of Maimonides rejected them, that still doesn't mean that that is in any way authoritative for later periods. After all, in later periods, the percentage of educated people in the population has exceeded the wildest dreams of what was the case in the Middle Ages. So I frequently tell my students, Omnam the, the Rambam, Maimonides wrote this book for the perplexed. That is a small group of people whom he thought these questions bothered. However, today, everyone is in that group. Everyone is in that group because we are all enlightened, educated people whom are the ex of whom the expectation that we're supposed to proceed according to the rules of, of, of physics and nature and history is absolute, right? So we're all perplexed. So uh, the percentages have changed. Yeah. Okay, I really, I'm not sure that I can include Professor Zakovich here because I haven't talked about this very much with him, but I think that probably what I'll say covers everyone. But you mentioned Greenberg. Okay, when I showed up for my oral exams, Greenberg was in the room. I see a few people turn pale just hearing that, right? Not everybody knows. Okay, Moshe the uh, one of the acknowledged elder statesmen of biblical scholarship today, and he was uh, my teacher in my uh, graduate years. And he was there when I showed up for my orals, as he had to be. And uh, he asked me almost the exact question, right? First he said, I don't know what these exams are on because I didn't see your bibliography, so I'll just ask you what comes to mind. That was very <laughs> cons consoling. Um, but that was basically his question. He said, how do you understand the difference between, and he mentioned a few medieval names. He said Rashbam, who was Rashi's uh, grandson, is one of the founders of the uh, philological, historical, Peshat-centered way of looking at the text, and Ibn Ezra. How would you say our method as critical scholars differs from theirs? So I am uh, embarrassed to say, or I'm happy to say, that I have completely blocked out whatever answer I may have, I may have stammered. But I know today what he was looking for, because in the years since, I've heard him speak about it and give the answer to it. And the answer is as follows. There really is no difference. The difference is in the tools and how finely honed, how sharpened, how precise they have become. As soon as you say that the meaning of a text is its historical, pshat, linguistic, contextual meaning, its literary sense, that is, as soon as you say that the Bible is written in a Hebrew that human beings understand according to the rules of human speech, as soon as you say that, then you have admitted all of the implications, consequences, and repercussions of the critical method, even the ones that you can't even dream about that are going to come 500 years from now. Because you've admitted the, the basic idea is that the text does not speak in a code, it speaks in the Hebrew that was spoken at the time. Wherever that leads you, that's where you have to go. So basically there is no difference except in how much we know that they didn't know. We know now some ancient, know some ancient languages that they didn't have a, a clue of. We have uh, a timeline of ancient history and they didn't have it. We have knowledge to do a better dissecting and job of analyzing than, than they had. But the method, I think there's no gainsaying this, there's no denying this, the method was there in the 12th century. And uh, we're, 
uh, I, I, find, I find actually some solace in that. Your question is a lot like the first questioner. I don't know your name. Uh, it, has, uh, it has something to do with, with, with what the first questioner asked. Because basically, um, the question is something like this. When you can solve the exegetical problems in the Bible, in the Torah or anywhere in the Bible, simply by some logical, historical, authorial, literary solution, doesn't that impoverish rather than enrich? That's the question, right? So the answer to the question, I have to be as honest as I possibly can, and then I'll withdraw a little bit. Answering as honestly as I can, I have to say, if it does, if it does, so what shall we have, wealth or truth? What shall we be, enriched or insincere? If the truth is poorer than we thought it was, if, this is the great big if, nobody leave before I go back to the, right, right. If that were the case, right, I would still have to say, as he said right back in the 12th century, I'm not going to commit any falsehood regarding the Torah and misrepresent things that I know to be otherwise. I fear God only, and I'm going to tell the truth the way it appears to me. But that if, as hypothetical and as ennobling as it may be to entertain it just for a moment, please get it out of your minds, because it's just a matter of the uh, two different endeavors. Studying the way in which the Torah and the rest of the Bible has been studied and the wealth of knowledge and information and teaching that has been derived from it, artificially or historically, over the years, is also a part of the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, right? It's also a part of the commandment to study Torah, and it's certainly a major part, if not the major part, of the Jewish heritage. So no one would dare to suggest, I certainly would never dare to suggest, that the critical historical study of the Bible should come in place of, in place of the studying of the rabbinic heritage and what it has to say about the Bible. I would like to see the two not get as confused, as identified as they have been for the last uh, couple of centuries. That would, be, uh, that would be paradise for me, to see them not be uh, as confused as they have become. But um, the other part of the if is uh, that I would like to sort of uh, put a promise on the table, um, and that is that if you get capable critics, capable uh, historical, philological, archaeological critics of the biblical text, they will not stop at the moment that they say, oh, well, it's just two authors and that's the solution. They will start there. They will arrive at their analysis of the texts and who wrote them and begin the undertaking of interpreting, explaining, and unearthing the, the richness, the beauty of those texts and the wealth of those texts from that point on rather than stopping there. So uh, I know some people like that. I'd like to see a few more out there in the profession. I'm doing my part to try and get them out there. And uh, I'm optimistic for the future.